This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Life and Man's Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we have a special guest on the podcast. His name is Chad Robichaux. Chad is a retired Force Recon Marine. He was an Afghanistan veteran, pro MMA champion, third degree BJJ black belt, best-selling author, speaker, and founder of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, which helps veterans and their families if they've uh, suffered any combat trauma or things like that. So this guy has a long resume. He's done a lot of different things. And I I got a lot of show notes for you, but I I just got to tell you something about this interview. Okay. So typically whenever I set up an interview, I'll set up way more questions than I probably have time because if they're very quick answers or if we end up having way more time, I'd rather have more questions ready to go. And I also like to kind of flow with my follow-ups, but this, this interview didn't really go as my interviews normally went. It it was a very unique interview in that guys, you're not going to hear a lot of me. You're not going to hear a lot of questions. And what's interesting is it's almost like Chad's like a little bit of a wind up doll. You just wind him up and you just let him go. And so at different points, he's going to, he's going to talk for a long time without interruption, but I want you to follow where he's going. Cause the moment you think that maybe he's veered off and he's forgotten what he was talking about, he does kind of bring it back to a central theme. So that's one thing that I thought was interesting as I was listening to his answers is he does bring it back. And again, you know, because of coronavirus and things like that, we're not in the same room. We can't see each other. You know, you don't have those natural breaks where you can kind of break in and ask a follow-up, but he just kept answering the questions that I would have, would have asked him. Right. And you can even tell at different points, like you can hear a noise in the background. Like you could tell, like he's probably fidgeting with stuff. Like you could just tell this guy's like a ball of energy. And so he's got all this information going on in his head that he can't just, you know, sit still in a chair and answer questions. I mean, he just, he just wants to tell you his story and he certainly does. And so I thought it was a very interesting, a very unique interview. And for points of that, it was almost like it was a little bit of a, ther- a therapy session. And I mean that as, as a compliment because he was just so comfortable that he could just continue talking about his feelings around certain issues and around the the way that those things were affecting him and those different things like that. So very interesting interview. Guys, without further ado, let's get into it. Chad Robichaux, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. Man, we got a, a lot to talk about today, a lot of ground to cover. So let's just start with something that's really a big part of your entire story, which is the military. So what made you join the United States military? And more specifically, why'd you choose the Marine Corps? Well, um, my father is a Marine. I have three generations of Marines in my family. I have my, my father, myself, and then my son, Hunter, who's uh, who just got back from Afghanistan. And, you know, uh, all three, all three of us are combat veterans. So that's kind of something we're super proud of in our family. Uh, when I was, when my dad came back, you know, he's an infantryman, an 0311 uh, rifleman, uh, Marine in Vietnam. And then when he came back, I'm sure he suffered with a lot of the same things that many new military folks suffer with today. I don't think he was ever diagnosed with PTSD, but certainly his life reflected lots of hardships and, and inability to reconcile um, his experience. Um, he was a very angry man, very violent, a lot of alcohol, women, and just uh, real poor decisions. And so we had a very dysfunctional home growing up, a, a, a lot of physical abuse, between, uh, mainly me and my brother, who was a year older than me. And um, so early on, I think we decided, you know, like many siblings who grew up in a dysfunctional home, you get really close and bonded together. And uh, in that closeness, we decided we would join the military um, to really escape the lifestyle we're in and start over. Um, we were 13 and 14 years old at a time and we just started running and swimming and watching Navy SEAL videos. And we were from Southern Louisiana. So we wanted to do something in the water because we both love to be in the, in the bayous in the water. And that was kind of our plan, uh, was joining the military. And, uh, even though my dad was, you know, not a very good person at that time, the one thing that always made my dad like happy, like the one positive thing he always had in his life was he was so proud of the fact that he was a United States Marine. And so I think seeing that one good thing in his life 
made me, despite you know who he was to me at the time, made me want to be a Marine as well. And uh, so started looking at what's what's like a Navy SEAL, but could be in the Marines. And we learned my brother and I learned at a young age about Marine recon, which wasn't a very popular thing back then. And so that that uh, first year of doing that, we were running, swimming, and we both were into martial arts and just training. And uh, about a year into that uh, tragedy, hit our family. My brother, he was he was shot and he was killed, and it was completely devastating to me at the time. Um, he's the closest person to me. My life went into like this. Uh, what I had in the family broke apart. My dad took off and took a job overseas. My uh, my, my mother uh, just completely lost you know every bit of sanity. Uh, losing a losing a child, and so by 15 years old, I was living on my own, and um, and really never let go of that. I went in that real deep isolation, but I never let go of that desire to join the military. And when I was 17 years old, uh, I probably wasn't going to graduate high school. I was living on my own and working. Uh, I was I was roofing, and I went to a Marine Corps recruiter named Staff Sergeant Brown. Of course, I still remember his name, and forever be grateful for him. And told him my situation, and and uh, despite I wasn't going to in a situation to graduate high school, he helped me get in the Marine Corps without a high school diploma and uh, on an infantry contract. And I made a promise to him I graduated high school. And in the first year after graduating boot camp, I got to 29 Palms, California, my first duty station as an infantry Marine. And I uh, went to Copper Mountain College there, got my GED. And uh, all these years later, I always say I, don't, uh, I have an MBA now and can't spell MBA, but I got one. <laughs> and, uh, but uh you know i really look back at that time and how the marine corps for me was like that military success story they gave me that fresh chance at life that clean slate to start from the beginning again and at even at a young age of 17 years old i feel like i truly recognized that at that age and i totally embraced it and uh that first year you know i tried out and uh to be a reconnaissance marine to fulfill that childhood dream that my brother and i had Obviously, if you know anything about being a recon Marine, the attrition rate's extremely high and very difficult to make it, especially at a young age like that. But I made it my first time through, and uh, and that began a, just a whole new chapter of life for me, not just how, learning how to become a recon Marine, but um, just some great older guys that mentored me and showed me how to be an adult. And so I'm just forever grateful for the Marine Corps um, and the uh, in reconnaissance community for just giving me that, that beginning, that new start at life again. Well, you see that a lot with a lot of Marines. You hear that story because, you know, you hear about the Marines. They don't have the resources that the other branches of the government do, but they still recruit really well. And when you talk to Marines, they kind of talk about it with that same badge of honor and pride that you just did. And so that's an incredible story that you're able to still overcome your circumstances in order to fulfill the goal that you had, that you and your brother had. And then right as you're, you know, you're a force recon Marine, you know, you're special operations capable and now 9-11 happens. And then all of a sudden you're off to Afghanistan. So what was that like? Because I'm assuming you, you, when you joined the Marines, we were in peacetime and then now, you know, we're at war. Yeah. I went in Marine Corps in 1993. So I had a, you know, I had a eight years of, of a peace being in a peacetime military. And um, I remember, you know, I was a third, assigned to third force recon company at the time and um, watching those planes flying at World Trade Center buildings, I remember sitting down watching with my uh, my wife on television, and I'm like, "Man, life's about to be different. You know, the world's about to change, and my life's never going to be the same. You know, just because of my nature of my job in the military." I thought we were going to deploy right away, and in the military, you know, for those who were in it at a time when that happened, I mean, the military wasn't like. Like, oh my gosh, we're going to war. It, military is motivated. It was like, hey, what's up, sir? Like, when are we going to do this? When are we going to set this right? And everyone wanted to deploy and was chomping at the bit too. Um, I uh, I thought it was going to go right away. We did not. Uh, it, uh, I ended up in ended up uh, in 2003 trying out for a JSOC task force, the Joint Special Operations Command Task Force, and uh, very. And I was already in a deployment workup, not for Afghanistan, but for Iraq. And so I was going, uh, headed out to deploy to Iraq and, uh, got picked up by the JSOC task force. And, um, and then I ended up not going to Iraq and going to Afghanistan at, instead. And, uh, subsequently went, did eight deployments on that task force to Afghanistan. And so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, going to Afghanistan after so many years of, of, uh, peacetime and, and being an older person, I say older, I was probably just, I was, wasn't quite 30 yet, but. I would consider myself older, having a lot of military experience and understanding what I was getting into. It was really weird because, you know, it's like, wow, we all this training, all these years, and it's finally, finally going to get to do my job. And I remember 
landing at Bagram Air Base. Was, that's where I landed. I left from Norfolk, Virginia for my first deployment. Took a C-130, stopped at Germany, landed at Bagram Air Base in the middle of the night. And I kind of walked off from everyone and went out to the 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 Hesco barriers and Constantino wire. That was the perimeter of Bagram back in 2003. And just, it was, it was pretty primitive still. And just, just look, listen, in the middle of the night, kind of reminded me of being in 29 Palms, looking at the stars and kind of orientate myself like, okay, there's a big dipper in our star. And I'm kind of thinking, I'm like, man, this is like very real. Like across those Hesco barriers, like the Taliban, the bad guy, and they're going to, I'm going to try to kill them and they're going to try to kill me. And this is like very real. And I think in the moment, moments like that, you kind of, pause and ask yourself if you're, if you're ready. And, uh, for me at that time, I was extremely, I was just extremely confident. You know, military talks about the pillars of resiliency, mind, body, spirit, social. Like I was mentally tough. I was physically tough. I knew my job really well. I was, I was fit. Um, uh, socially I was, I was with the best, like the single best special operations unit you could be assigned to. That's where I was. So I like socially, I was like, had the right people around me. In the spiritual piece, I felt like I well, I had the word Christian stamped on my dog tag, you know. So, but uh, the truth is, it was like a check in the box. I didn't really even know what that meant. And I believe that I reconcile. I, I, I couldn't reconcile like a person of faith and in combat. And I really felt like in the, when I first, maybe not the first day I got to Afghanistan, but in the first moments of being there and trying to wrap your mind around your job and what you're gonna have to do and your peers and all these things, like. I really believe that I felt like I had to make a choice between being a person of faith, like a man of God, a Christian, or being a warrior. I felt like I had to choose between the two. Like, do I want to be this person of faith or do I want to be a warrior? Of course, I'm going to choose being a warrior. Uh, and and um, and I felt like I, I made a deliberate choice to put faith out of my life at that time, put it on a shelf. I could do this when I get older, but right now I need to be this more cool warrior. And, uh, and honestly, I believe outside of combat, just doing ministry now, I believe I see that men fall spectrums of life. Somehow they feel like they have to choose between their Christianity or their masculinity. And I don't think there's any bigger lie uh, from the enemy. When I say the enemy, I mean the spiritual enemy, the devil. I don't think there's any bigger lie of the enemy than that. They feel like we have to choose between being being a people of God, a men of God in our faith. Because if it's not for men of God in this world, you know, who's going to stand up and, and fight the difficult fights that need to be fought in this world. And, and, uh, I wish I would have knew that because I think I made a deliberate choice to take God out of my life and it left a giant hole inside of my heart that over the following years I would fill with hate and rage, and anger and bitterness. And like this darkness kind of came over me. I, I didn't live, you know, I went to Bagram, I landed at Bagram, but I didn't live on Bagram. I ended up because of my job, I ended up living out in the communities with the local national Afghan Afghans. I lived in their homes, I ate dinner with their families, I played soccer with their kids. And I began to hear like the stories of uh, what the Taliban had done, the true like oppression and the sexual molestation of children and the physical abuse and just the, the, the evil things that the Taliban did to the people of Afghanistan. And I went from this like patriotic sense of patriotism, retaliating for 9-11 to this like really just heart for that, for these Afghan people and the oppression that they were under. And, uh, and, uh, and just hearing those things at first and then seeing them firsthand, I really uh, developed a real hatred towards the towards the Taliban and the guys I worked with on my task force. So there's like the Viking war culture mentality and the Afghans that I worked with, the former Northern Alliance guys, like really hated the Taliban. So I just like bought into this and, and I just had this real deep hatred that drove me. And it was this very intense guy and did my, and, and to be honest with you, that intensity and kind of anger and rage, it, it seems to work really well on the battlefield, but. It's not very sustainable, and it doesn't really work well when you're in Afghanistan doing that, performing that way, and then 24 hours later, you're home, and you can't flip a switch. I, at least I couldn't, and you have to be like, you know, husband and father and Mr. Rogers, the friendly neighbor. Or like, I couldn't be that guy. I was still like this angry, intense person. And, uh, you know, I look back at that kind of phase of my life, and um, and it's uh, actually pretty shameful. I look at back at coming home and – to a family that was excited to see me and missed me. And then, you know, I was just a tyrant to them. Uh, my wife and kids walked around the eggshells. He was worried they were going to set me off and, and me just flipping out and cursing and punching things and throwing things and breaking things and slamming doors and, and just screaming at my wife and children like I was a Marine Corps drill instructor. You know, that's, that's kind of how I behaved. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a good place. It probably wasn't even a safe place for my family at the time. 
remember one time my daughter was, she was just so excited that dad was going to be home from Afghanistan for her birthday. And, uh, and so she, she moved her birthday party for me to be there. And, and she's very opinionated. My daughter, she's, she still is. She's, you know, just left the, you know, just stayed her mind. She's really, really outspoken. And she didn't like the icing on her cake, like something super simple. And for some reason, I just like totally flipped out. And I grabbed a hand, handful of my little girl's birthday cake, picked her entire birthday cake up in front of everyone and threw it against the wall and destroyed my little girl's birthday. I remember like when that happened, like everyone like staring at me, of course, and, and my daughter crying and me thinking like, like who does something like that? Like what kind of, what kind of dad behaves that way? And the truth is, this is one example. That's how I behaved all the time. I was just completely out of control. I knew it, but instead of like admitting I was wrong, like, you know, when you're doing something, you know, you're wrong. If you admit it, you kind of like conceding. So instead of admitting it, I just, I just started distancing myself from my, from my family, my wife and kids and really isolating myself and just being like, well, I could deal with this later right now. This is just who I am. I have to be this way because I have to, I'm going to be back in Afghanistan. And it's just, I was just really justifying, um, that inappropriate behavior and just kind of recklessness with my family. And so I just continued to push, push on and, and uh, just keep my distance from them, stay as busy as I could be on every deployment I could get on every in between deployments, every school or training I could get, I get to. And um, eventually that anger and intensity started to manifest in these physiological symptoms. I, I started having these, uh, my arms would go numb. My face would go numb. Sometimes I feel like my throat was swelling shut. Even at like moments where I feel like I have like a thousand pound weight on my chest and my heart's like feels this pressure. I mean, I know now those were like early signs of panic attacks, and um, and I didn't want to admit that's what I was dealing with, but I, I, deep down I knew this was anxiety coming on, and so I, I didn't uh, I didn't ask for help. I didn't speak up because I thought the guys who uh, who I worked with in this little special operations community, I thought they would think I was weak, and um, probably not a paranoia, by the way. That's that's exactly what would have happened because if someone would have told me they were dealing with that, I would have thought the same thing. I would have thought they were weak and couldn't hang and, and uh, I would really classify them that way. And I probably wouldn't have been able to do my job anymore. And so my reaction to that was, okay, I got to suck this up, push it down as far as I can and, um, and, and just deal with it. So that's, that's exactly what I did. And it worked for a little while, but over time, those, uh, those symptoms started to get much worse. Um, now, now I was getting these points to where I felt like, you know, not only I could not breathe, but I had these moments where I felt like my body was shutting down and was dying. I had these moments to where I'd forget things like of like absence of memory and kind of snap out of like a fog. And then I had these uh, moments during intense, very intense times in Afghanistan to where I feel like my body was, uh, I know now it's be called disassociation where your mind feels like it leaves your body and you almost have like a bird's eye view of yourself. So I was having some very extreme reactions to the stress uh, that I was under um, towards the end of, towards the end of this, I had a, I had several team members that were killed. Um, a good number of them were Afghans, which I know a lot of people might think, well, that's not as big a deal as you know, fellow U.S. service members. But to me, it was. These guys were like, these guys were very close to me. Uh, ten of them um, that worked for me for three years. I knew their families very well, and their wife and children, and uh, they were my brothers. You know, they would have died for me. I would have died for them. They were, they were just like any other teammate. And uh, for me, like the loss of them and me being responsible for them. If there was a thread that I was holding on to, that was probably the, the, the last, last, uh, thing to hang on and it, it broke. And, uh, and then, um, some other things happened that really amped up the intensity of what I was dealing with. And I went on like a, one last operation and I didn't remember, I came back from it and uh, I did, I, it was about two week gap that I couldn't remember barely anything. It was like if I woke up out of a dream and I just had this moment of clarity where I realized, like, not only did I put myself in danger, but I was beginning to put other people in danger as well. And so I finally spoke up and said something. And just as I suspected, I was I was brought home. And I ended up sitting before a clinical psychologist. And I remember my wife and I sitting in front of them and being diagnosed with a severe chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. I didn't even really even know much about PTSD at the time. Um, I definitely don't. I've written several books about it, do a lot of speaking. I was testified before Congress on PTSD. I'm very much aware of PTSD is now because I didn't know then. And I've been on a lifelong quest to uncover the truths and realities of it. And I've written a book called The Truth About PTSD, understanding what it is and what it's not and how it's not a disorder. Our body does exactly what it's supposed to 
in times of stress and anxiety, seeing things and doing things we were never created or intended to see and do. And while I don't believe it's a disorder, uh, and I don't believe it's what a lot of people think it is, I can tell you that the symptoms that I and many people are facing are very real. Um, the the level of, uh, of uh, overwhelming anxiety that I was under is very hard to explain, and I've experienced this several times in my life uh, at that time and since then. When uh, when I get a panic attack, it's not like people say, oh, you know, I was in traffic the other day and I had a panic attack. You know, no, you just got stressed out. But when I say I have a panic attack, it's my hands are zip tied behind my back. I have a plastic bag over my face, that, like that level of panic. Like if I'm in a swimming pool and my ankle's handcuffed to the drain and I'm drowning and the foot, the air is like the surface, like one foot above my head, like how desperate would you be for one breath of air while you're just, you're drowning, but you never die. You're like that 24 seven, like that level of panic. Don't, you know, I think, you know, in those moments, maybe you don't want to kill yourself, but you just want to escape that. And it's like being on a burning building. You just jump for the sake of not burning. Um, that's the level of panic attacks I was under. And on top of that, that extreme level of panic, uh, I did not like the medicine they were giving me. When they gave me the medicine, I, I was convinced it was going to kill me, um, which which was a big part of that. The, the fear of the medicine was make, was amplifying things. And then, uh, and then on top of that, I was completely ashamed. I felt like I had let down my friends, my team, like my country. Like I felt down, I felt like I had worked my whole life to have the opportunity to be a Marine, to be a recon Marine, to be make it the force recon, to make it over to JSOC task force, to get given these really important mission and responsibilities. And, and, uh, and I had let everyone down. That's what I felt like. Um, it was like if I played football my whole life, and, uh, and then finally made it to NFL, which I never would, by the way, because I'm five foot three. <laughs> get, to get that point, right? I, I made it to the Super Bowl, and in the middle of the Super Bowl, you know, I missed the game winning, the game winning play. That's that was this level of shame that I felt. I was completely ashamed. All the people that I was closest to in my life, my friends, I was really cut, isolated from that group of people. It was just me and my wife left to deal with it, and uh, I was in a really, really bad place. And uh, my wife and my children. Uh, I knew we were trying to get, do everything they could to snap me out of it. And it was actually my wife and my counselor that sat me down and they tried to get me to do something physical, but I really felt like if I went jogging or something, I would have a heart attack and die. That's what I believed. And so they talked me into getting on the mats and doing jujitsu, which by the way, it's, I, I'd say I did it since I was little, but like I said earlier, I'm still little. Like I, I did it since I was five years old. That, it's been my lifelong thing. I've done um, judo and jujitsu, traditional jujitsu and wrestling and, I was already a professional MMA fighter at the time. I was fighting on the side when I was in the military. And at that time, I was uh, I was a brown belt in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I hadn't had, gotten my black belt yet. Um, but I was really, you know, something that was a really big part of my life. So they convinced me to get on those mats. And uh, I felt like when I got on those mats for the first time, I I felt like I found a cure. Because you can't think about Afghanistan and anything that's bothering you and grapple at the same time. you got to be focused or your buddy's going to beat you up, right? So you got to it's something that focuses you and focuses you. And to be honest with you, uh, like I said, I felt like it was a cure because I couldn't think about anything else. I had to be unplugged and in the moment. And uh, and uh, I figured, man, if I could do this 24-7, I'll be good to go. And that's pretty much what I did. I got in those mats and uh, and didn't get off. And, you know, and, and I think jiu-jitsu is good for you. I still do it to this day. Uh, I'm a third degree black belt in a Carlson Gracie and I teach jiu-jitsu up in Prescott, Arizona and I train with my friends and I train every day I can. And when I have a bad day doing working with veterans, which is very stressful doing ministry and working with veterans, I go to a gym and I find like some 20 year old stud and I choke him out. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's very therapeutic to me, but I do believe that, uh, you can have something that's good for you, like a medicine for being sick and you could abuse that, that medicine. And that's what I did with jiu-jitsu. I took it out of context, and I put 24-7 every waking hour I could and, and just dove into this uh, this sport and didn't really deal with my problems. And uh, when you put a lot of time into something, you, you should be pretty good at it. If not, you should probably find something else to put your time into. But I put a lot of time into this, and I, and so I opened a school and ended up with like a 1,000 students in my school, so making really good money. I started fighting professionally again and ended up uh, – at the end of my career, I ended up with an 18-2 and two professional record. At my highest ranking, I was ranked number six flyweight in the world and number four bantam, 14, number 14 bantamweight. So I had pretty good world rankings. I won a, won a world title belt, uh, Legacy FC world title belt, and I fought in Strikeforce and Bellator and you know, pay-per-view and all the big shows. And 
and so on the outside, it looked like everything was, was good, but under this really fake facade of success, I wasn't, I hadn't dealt with my panic attacks. I hadn't dealt with my, my, uh, instability in my home. I was still screaming at wife and children. I was still having, I was still having these panic attacks again. And at night I was having a very difficult time sleeping. I'd have nightmares, like didn't want to go to sleep. Um, I don't even know how I functioned as an athlete because I didn't sleep much. But uh, I was, you know, going to sleep was like Nightmare on Elm Street. You just kind of don't want to go to sleep because you don't want to you know, have dreams or anything. And right. I, I was refusing to take, refusing to take the, a lot of the medicine that they were giving me. And so that's my life looked good, but it was really in a bad state. And uh, and uh, my marriage was falling apart. I'd say many nights I'd sleep in the gym or at a friend's house or in one of my kids' bedrooms. My loneliest place, my wife and I would say we've ever been is in our own beds bed with our backs turned towards each other in this dead marriage um, our marriage was just really just over we were coexisting for the kids and it didn't take long for me being in a sport where you, you get in a fight on television and lots of girls around to walk out of her marriage into a full-blown affair uh didn't even really care at the time I, I had like zero empathy for anything and um wife found out we sat our family down and told them we'd get divorced it was going to be better, like you wouldn't have to hear the fighting, and you could get two Christmases, all the things that divorcing couples tell their kids to to make it sound better. And and uh, we we did we moved forward. We found we found, we filed for divorce. We sold our home, and uh, my wife and I signed signed two separate twelve month leases on apartments. And um, we really handled handled that decision two very different ways. My wife, she went into a church. I don't think she was going into a church like. Because we'd already went to church, but the truth is, in the past, that took my family to church really to just control them. You know, if my wife goes to church, she'll be like faithful and loyal and a Christian godly woman, and the kids can go to Sunday school. But like, I'm not going to engage with those, you know, big, big men at church because they wouldn't people appeal to me. I'm like, I'm not joining the softball team and hanging, hanging out with those nerds. Uh, That's kind of my my mentality. Uh, I just had a really cynical view of, of men and ma- uh, masculinity and Christianity and. And some of that's actually true, I believe, because uh, there's a lot of passive men in the church. And uh, one of my missions in life is to turn that around. But, but at, at the time, I, you know, we, we were going to church. My wife went to a different church because she wanted to be with a, a, a place where there was just positive people who wouldn't um, be toxic and be like, yeah, your husband's a jerk. She just wanted to be around positivity. And so she joined this church. And uh, I talked to people that said she would go. I was talking to same, some mutual friends, and they said she was going there like every day. And I was like really had a bitter attitude towards her about it. And uh, she wasn't going there like just on Sunday. She'd go there just pray for me. And she, you know, people said she was standing against the home wall. And I, I even had a vision of where she was standing now because I've seen it since. And since she was just collapsed crying, praying for me. Of course, uh, you know, I'm asked since, you know, what were you praying for me in those times? And I was just portraying her that way. She said she would pray, you know, God, let me see Chad the way you see Chad. Let me love Chad the way you love Chad. Let me forgive Chad the way you forgave Chad. And that's what she was praying for me. She said she, uh, didn't believe she was trying to reconcile our marriage at the time. She was just truly worried about me, praying for me, wanted peace with me, whether we got to be back together or not. And uh, so it was really selfless kind of effort on her part. Meanwhile, like I'm in this apartment, like within two days, it's like a blown out bachelor pad. I don't have to deal with this woman anymore. She never understood me anyway. Like, and I had this big fight on Showtime uh, on Strike Force. You, you know, follow MMA back uh, before the UFC bought them out. Strike Force was the second biggest show. UFC acquired it, and uh, it was you know a huge fight. I was uh, I was undefeated. I was fighting this up and coming kid named Roberto De Leon, and um, in front of ten thousand people in the Toyota Center. And that fight was like knockdown. Like if all my so I have I'm eighteen and two. I have eighteen wins. Seventeen of my wins are I finished to people in submissions. This was my one decision. And it was like, if you have a fight, if you're a fighter, you want that Rocky Balboa fight. This was like my Rocky Balboa fight. Like every round we knocked each other down. It was back and forth. And uh, I remember when I went to the judges and it was more out of my ego because I believe I could have submitted them in the first round, but everybody was talking crap that I couldn't uh, submit him, uh, that I couldn't, uh, that I wouldn't stand and strike with him. And uh, instead I just tried to submit him. So I stood in the middle of the ring with this golden glove boxer and got punched in the face and kicked him, kicked him in the face. It was back and forth. But I remember when they were like given the announcement and decision. I was like, I couldn't remember anything. I don't even remember what one I lost. And so they raised his hand for one, raised my hand for the other. And I'm like, oh my gosh, it's a split decision. I'm going to lose this fight. 
And then they raised my hand and uh, the announcer announced my name and I, you know, win this fight, this battle of a fight. Remember like all the pressure came off and everyone's cheering. There's like 10,000 people in there cheering and you get your hand raised and you feel like you won, you know, every time you win a fight, it just feels like you, you just the biggest accomplishment you can get in the world. And, uh, and I remember in that moment, it was almost like time kind of stopped. And I remember thinking like of these 10,000 people cheering, like Kathy wasn't there. She was there for all my fights before, you know, she was like always my cheerleader there. And, uh, and I remember thinking like, wow, like I just fought like so hard, like willing to die in this ring over a sport and over one more win on my, my stupid record. But meanwhile, like my wife isn't there. She's probably at home, like just devastated. My children are devastated. And, uh, you know, how much effort I was putting into this sport and not where it mattered most. And that, that thought led me to go home uh, by myself to that part, my apartment that night. And of course, you can't go to sleep after a big fight like that. So my mind's like spinning, spinning, and spinning. And I'm thinking like, I blamed everyone else for all the things that I had uh, I'd been through, like being my father from my childhood and people in the military and my wife were never understanding my situation. But when I really looked at the destruction around me in my life, like I was the common denominator, like the problem was me. And, uh, and this thought came over me that maybe my family would be sad without me, but they would be better off. You know, and, um, and that unfortunately, that same hopeless thought finds a home in the hearts of 22 veterans every single day. Like maybe my family would be sad without me. Maybe my wife would be sad. My children would be sad. My friends would be sad without me. But the world's going to be better off without me. And, and, and at that time, I think I, I really believed that. And I wasn't about to cry out for help like it wasn't like a like I'm gonna take my life. I made a decision I was taking my life, but it wasn't like I'm gonna let people know so they could talk me out of it. Like I, I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want anyone to talk me out of it. So it was like to myself, my own little silo, and uh, and I had a, a Glock 22 pistol. So I started like going to my closet in my apartment and I put my family pictures under the floor in front of me and I try to build up the courage, you know, because at this time of my life I know what a gun does when you pull that trigger and the trigger breaks. I know what happens. So I try to build up the courage. You look at these pictures. To pull that trigger and uh and you know in my life but every time i I'd, I'd put that gun against my head this thought would just come into my head this overwhelming thought of how i was going to be found and uh and i knew that the only other person that had a key in my apartment besides me was my son hunter the one that's a marine now and uh and every time that thought would come in my head and i'm like i can't let my my son whether he opens the door and finds me or he lets someone in like i can't let him find me that way what it would do to him you know and uh and i didn't want to leave that impression, uh, that last impression on him and so that would be enough to like help me pump the brakes but then the next day i was back trying to pump myself up to do it again and so i was like this this kind of uh, up and down like roller coaster emotions trying to build up the courage to do it and not go out that way at the same time and there was this one there was one day I, I guess me and my wife had this big argument on the phone i don't really remember it she does and she said she uh, came. She felt something was wrong, so she came to my apartment. When she came to my apartment, I was literally in the closet with that pistol, trying to build myself up. And she knocked on the door. And I heard the knock, but I wasn't going to answer it. And then she yelled and announced herself. And when she did, probably like a five-year-old getting caught doing something, I took that pistol and hid it under a blanket. She would have never found it, but for some reason, uh, I believe out of shame, I actually hid that pistol. And I and I went and answered the door, and we got in this argument. And during the argument, she asked me a question that you know radically changed my life. She asked me uh, how I could do everything I did in the military. You know, she saw me become a recon marine, train for these schools, do deployments, go to Afghanistan, do these crazy things. She saw me do all that, train for these fights, like make weight, lose like 25, 35 pounds for fights, looking like a Holocaust victim. Like the amount of discipline it takes to do like all the stuff that I did in my life. She's like, how could you do all those things? And when it comes to your family, you'll quit. And uh, I was, you know, I don't know about the listeners on here, but to me, there's no more uh, soul cutting word to me than to be called a quitter. And she knows that. And she said it at the right time. And uh, I knew she was right. And so I'm a pretty radical decision maker. As simple as it may sound, it was pretty profound for me. I made a decision in a moment that I was going to get back in the fight and, and turn things around. I didn't know how to do it. But I knew I couldn't do it with the people I'd surrounded myself by. And I knew I couldn't do it alone. Um, I knew I needed some accountability. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I'll go back, start back to accountability. Like, like nothing against the people in my jiu-jitsu school because I had like 
surrounded by like a thousand students in my school. But uh, I, I was surround. I had intentionally surrounded myself by people that told me what I wanted to hear and not what I needed to hear. And I needed some accountability in my life. And again, I knew I couldn't do this, but make these decisions by myself. Uh, so I asked my wife, is there someone in your church you're going to that could help, you know, some man that could come in my life and help hold me accountable to these decisions I was making, you know, making decisions to try to get my life back on track, to finally get healthy, to, uh, I mean, she called me a quitter and she's right. I've been successful at professional things when it came to the most important things, being a husband, being a father, being that young 17 year old kid that raised his hand and took advantage of the opportunity to do something important. I quit on all those things. So I'm making some big decisions to get back on track, uh, including my own, my own health. And I need, I just needed some accountability. And so she introduced me to this man named Steve Toth who went to a church she was going to. And, uh, Steve wasn't an MMA fighter or a military guy or anything like that. He, he just, he was, a, he happened to be an elder on call at the church when she called. I met him at a Starbucks coffee shop and, uh, Literally, I look back now and I know that I was very manipulative. So I was looking for someone to be more like to use to try to earn my wife's trust back. And so I had, I look at Steve and like his biggest gift to help me is the fact that he has ADD, like really bad. I mean, like the guy has no patience for anything. Like if you go to lunch with him, he doesn't walk to his car, he runs to his car because like walking is wasting his time. And uh, the reason this was helpful for me because I was totally going to manipulate him and, and get him on my team but he just had no patience at all for anything like that. He, uh, I had written a, I'd written like this five paragraph order, like military operational order of how I was going to fix my life. And I was, I was like super proud of it. I sat down at Starbucks and I probably like real smugly, like slid it over to him. Like, Hey, check this out. And he even looked at it and he slid it right back over to me and told me I was going to end up, end up right back where I was. And, uh, he told me I was going to fail. And I'm like, I remember being like really offended. Like he didn't even look at this thing. I put effort into it. Like I give, giving you my time instead of the other way around. Right. My thinking's like, I'm giving you my time, not him giving me mine and uh, give me his. And you didn't even take a look at this thing. And he tapped on that paper and he said something that I'll never forget. He said, if this thing doesn't have, or this plan doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God. I'm not going to waste your time and I'm not going to let you waste mine. And, uh, you know, at that point in my life, I had tried everything. I had been on all the medication. I had been through counseling and veteran programs. I had been through, uh, I had professional success, jiu-jitsu, MMA, all those things. I had tried everything uh, and nothing had worked. And we have a saying at Mighty Oaks Foundation, the foundation that I run for veterans. Uh, that saying is, if what, you're doing is, if what you're doing isn't working, then why not try something different? So if what you're doing isn't working, why not try something different? I had tried everything and nothing worked. So it's time for me to try something different. And while I had those pillars of resiliency I talked about when I got to Afghanistan, mind, body, spirit, social, the one thing that I knew deep down was missing that I left a long time ago was that spiritual peace. And when Steve told me that this thing doesn't have anything to do with your relationship with God, that he wasn't going to waste my time, I knew it was it was time for me to give that give that a chance and uh, and to give it a real chance, a real effort. And I figured like what I have to lose, and so I trusted this man, Steve. I surrendered my life to Christ um, in a pretty authentic way. Um, say authentic, I didn't really know what it meant. But, uh, but it was all in. I'm like, I'm going to try. And I'm going to try. If I'm going to try, I'm going to put my time into it. I'm going to do it for real. And so beyond that decision, I, I, I really let Steve have access to my life and have, a, have some input in my life. And, uh, and he mentored me for about a year in biblical manhood and uh, really just systematically calibrating my life to the life that I was intended to live and the way I was intended to live it. Live it. And what happened through that process was pretty profound. Uh, one is, I think the most profound thing for me at that time was that I realized all these things that happened to me, as bad as they may have been, childhood, Afghanistan, all those things that, you know, losing one of my best friends, Foster Harrington, we were friends for 10 years at Third Force Recon before he was killed, killed in our first deployment. And, and uh, just all these bad things that happened, as bad as those things may have been, those things did not lead me to be in that closet with my, with my pistol in my hand. What led me there were the choices I made in response to those things. And the realization that that I didn't have to that I could choose differently moving forward. And as cliche as it may sound, it was this revelation in my life that I didn't have to let my past define my future. I could choose a different future moving forward, and I did. And uh, and through that decision to choose to not be a victim, not let my past control my control my present and my future, I, I found restoration 
in my my life and my own brokenness and my marriage and my family. I found restoration there. I found hope for the very first time in a long time. And I found what I think most of us seek their whole life. And I certainly did. And I think most every man seeks their entire life. And that's purpose. Uh, purpose is important. We were created to have purpose. Uh, and when we don't, we kind of wither up. If you really want to know why 22 veterans take their life every day, it's not because it's something they seen or did in war or, uh, or anxiety or depression. It's because they were important one day. They had a very clear, defined purpose one day. And then the next, next day they wake up and they feel like their purpose was gone. And they don't have a reason to wake up the next day. That's the reason. Um, we were intended to have purpose. And without it, again, we wither up and we feel like we're dead. Mark Twain has one of my favorite quotes about this. He says, the two most important days in a person's life are the day that they're born and the day that they find out why. When Steve Toth introduced me to the life that God created me to live, I felt like I discovered that why for me. And it was to share what I discovered in my life with other people. And, um, and I felt a calling, uh, really a calling from God, to be frank and candid with everyone. I felt a calling and a really a burden on my heart to share what I discovered with others. Um, I had realized that I wasn't the only one that was struggling for a long time. I thought no one could feel the way I feel. No one could be as depressed as I am. No one's hope could feel as hopeless as I do. I realized that I wasn't the only one that other people, in fact, 22 people a day were actually taking their lives from, from my community. The divorce rates were astronomical and some, some basis like 80% for combat veterans divorcing their families. And, uh, and people were being diagnosed with PTSD and struggling just like I was. So, so many other people were struggling. I wasn't the only one, but yet I had found the way forward. I found the solution. And so I felt an obligation to share it. Like, um, like if I was dying of cancer and this guy, Steve Toth gave me the cure, I didn't want to share it. I needed to share it and I needed to share it right away. And so when we started Mighty Oaks Foundation, it wasn't like, Hey, it'd be a great idea to leave our job, you know, a six figure job in our careers, you know, career worked my whole life for to be a professional athlete and at the peak of my game, let's walk away from that and give away our martial arts school and our livelihood. It was a terrible idea, actually. And I had no idea about the nonprofit world and veterans service, but uh, I knew I had to. And so my wife and I made a decision to walk away from our, our lives and everything we had we had uh, really worked for in business and, uh, and uh, my martial arts career and uh, to share what we discovered with others. And we started Mighty Oaks Foundation in 2011. And, uh, and even though it was a crazy decision and one that I wasn't ready for, it's been the most phenomenal thing I've ever been part of in my life. Um, God has really opened just impossible doors for me. I've been partnered. We have, I have the most amazing team of people that I don't even deserve to be friends with, much less get to work with. Um, we have, you know, just incredible staff of people uh, that that work at Mighty Oaks Foundation, who many of them have been through the same thing I've been through and got on the other side of it and want to share it as well. And uh, we we uh, do do a couple of things. If uh, if I could. If it's okay for me to kind of share, yeah, sure. Where we, where we are right now, um, we we really help people recover the way I the way I did through a program called Legacy Program, and we run a we have we have four different ranches around the country. We have a ranch in California, Virginia, Texas, and Ohio. Our ranch in California, for example, Sky Rose Ranch, through a partnership with Serving USA, they uh, we have twenty five thousand acre ranch in beautiful wine country, California. We run 30, of the, 30 one-week camps a year. So 30 times a year, we have a one-week camp. People in active duty from all four branches come with military orders to us. People from the veteran community come. We have spouses. We have a spouses program. We even have some first responders programs. And uh, when they come to the programs, they're there for a week. It's peer-to-peer -peer mentorship, so there's no clinical psych psychologist there. It's a peer-to-peer -peer mentorship of people who've been there before, before, fell in their face, got back up again, sharing the way forward they got it, uh, for the life that God intended you to live. And, uh, and it's just been an incredible. We've had 3,500 graduates uh, go through the program and just had a, uh, amazing life changes. By the way, we do all those programs for free. We don't charge any any uh, tuition to come. And we even pay for airfare. So we cover all the travel. We have a scholarship fund for, uh, for travel as well. So 3,500 people we've had come through. And again, we do 30 of those a year. Uh, with this corona thing going, we stood up a virtual program. So we have that available as well for people that can't come. Uh, to do the programs uh, virtu virtual, live online. Uh, another thing we do is uh, resiliency programs. We go to bases around the world um, and speak about combat resiliency, spiritual resiliency, PTSD, suicide. I've spoken, uh, I've personally been able to speak to about 150,000 active duty warriors at bases around the world. 
the Marine Corps lets me speak at Marine Corps boot camp every quarter. So get, for the last five years, I got to speak to all the recruits coming through Marine Corps boot camp uh, and writing several books. I uh, give them away. Uh, there's a book called Path to Resiliency that I've given away about 100,000 copies. Uh, I give those away to everyone at Marine Corps boot camp on the West Coast. And, uh, and then the other program we have is our, is our aftercare program. After we care for people, we put them in aftercare and make sure they have sustained care to move forward with. And then just recently, uh, through our efforts of, and a lot of advocacy work, me testifying before Congress and uh, for veterans care and faith-based, faith-based initiatives for veterans care, I was just appointed to be the, uh, one of the chairmen for the Faith-Based Veteran Service Line Alliance, uh, FBVSA, working with the White House and Congress for faith-based veterans care uh, to work with hand in hand with DOD and the Veterans Administration. And so lots of uh, success working there and collaborating with other amazing veterans service organizations. You know, Mighty Oaks is mine, just bringing these other amazing organizations together to serve, working directly with the White House, the presidents, this, uh, this administration, President Trump has really uh, went out of his way to uh, set up some great executive to sign some great executive orders and to make that happen. And secretary to Wilkie, Wilkie at the VA, he's, he's doing a um, really good job in that area as well. The VA, I, I know there's lots of veterans on here and the VA is not perfect. I'm probably one of the biggest critics of the VA, but in this area, they don't have it right, but they're headed in the right direction. And the, and working with us at the, at, at the FBVSA is one of the best steps they could do. Cause we, uh, we have the track records of how to help people with faith, faith programs. And so I'm, I'm super proud of government for doing that. And, but, um, and then one of the things I get to do quite a bit is a lot of public speaking and, uh, and uh, raising awareness, bringing in support, uh, bringing in support to pay for these programs that are free to the veterans. And I've written several books. Uh, one of them, um, An Unfair Advantage, is being made in a motion picture film uh, right now uh, with, uh, with LD Entertainment. So lots of great stuff going, uh, going forward to continue serving uh, veteran community and uh, anybody out there who any veterans who heard this and really sh- you're struggling, maybe want some connect, uh, definitely reach out to us. Mightyoaksprograms.org. Again, all of our programs are, are absolutely free. So awesome. Well, Hey man, thank you for going into such detail on all those different things. What's funny is uh, a lot of the stuff you covered were questions that I was going to ask. And so that worked out really well. You, you, you kind of kept it all uh, going there. And so what I wanted to do right now is transition a little bit into talking a little bit more specifically about MMA and Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. Cause I feel like you gave us a lot of context on the military and the PTSD and some of those other things. So I want to ask a few questions there and then we'll do a couple of lightning round uh, questions there at the end. But you mentioned starting your career 11 and 0, you were actually five and 0 as an amateur before that and you lost two fights in a row after you started your your MMA career 11 and 0 so what was that like mentally for you because again this is you know I'm not sure where this is at in the timeline of when you're having problems at home and when you're kind of dealing with your PTSD but there's a lot of guys that listen to this podcast that like MMA that train that that compete and so I'm, I'm sure they would like to hear from a guy like you that's accomplished so much when you lose a couple of fights in a row if you don't mind just tell us kind of what that did yeah, it's kind of crazy because you look at my amateur career, you know, five, I had five, not career, I mean, just at the time, it was just amateur, you know, five amateur fights. And then at the time when I, you know, when I fought, I had, I had like 21, 20 or 21 straight wins. And uh, and being undefeated like that, you kind of feel, you kind of feel like you can't be beat. And, uh, but when I fought Zach Makovsky at Bellator for Bellator main event, I knew that it was a, a huge step up in competition. I had fought some tough guys before, but Zach Makovsky was a, he's a world Greco champion wrestler. You know, he's like one of the best wrestlers that in MMA. And so, you know, I knew that I was facing a different level opponent and uh, that's what I wanted. I wanted to taste, I wanted to face you know, the best, best fighter in the world. And I believe at the time, at that time, Zach Makovsky was probably the best, best bantamweight in the world. I was a flyweight and bantamweight, hard to get flyweight fights. And so when I went up against him, I, I knew I was really testing myself, and it was my first loss. He he beat me, uh, and um, a lot of people have excuses when people get beat. For me, that was the best I had to offer. I was in the best shape. I had, felt like I had the best camp. I felt like I performed everything I wanted to try to perform that I did. That was the best version of me at that time that I could have put forward, and I still lost. And so even though it was my first loss, a lot of people were like, "Wow, how'd you take your first loss?" That was my favorite fight. Of all my fights, my first loss because I felt like I competed against 
who I consider to be probably the best fighter, bantamweight fighter in the world at the time, and and that gave up a pretty competitive fight. And uh, you know, it was I was happy with my performance, even though I came up short. And uh, so it, it wasn't a hard hit. Uh, this I, I felt like I need to get right back on a horse. And uh, and this was by the way that fight was as things were turning around in my life. Kathy and I were already back together. Steve's mentoring me at the time. I was in a pretty good place emotionally and mentally at that time when I when I uh, when I fought Zach Makovsky in Bellator. And then when I, my next fight, even though I fought a, I fought a guy named Jonathan Mackles, even though he had a fourteen and two record, which is a really good record, I felt like it was a I felt like it was an easy win for me. I felt like um, I could beat him ten times out of ten, and I probably could. Uh, no offense to him, but I just I was just a better fighter than him. And it was like a slip on a banana peel fight for me. I just got caught, and uh, and I got, I got hit. I went to I went to sleep, but kept fighting, and I woke up in a choke. So uh, you know, no excuse for what happened. I just don't remember what happened, but I remember waking up, kind of like not even sure where I was, and um, you know, and the fight was over. And so I was really bummed on that one because I really felt like I really felt like that was my rebound fight, but. I look back at it now and, you know, people always use the cliche terms, you know, things are happening for a reason. If I would have won that fight against Jonathan Mackles, you know, t- talking to the matchmaker at the UFC, Sean Shelby, like you lost to Zach Makovsky and Bellator wasn't a big deal, but to lose two in a row, you got to come back from that. And if I would have won that fight with the timing, I may not have uh, started Mighty Oaks. I don't know that because I don't know how things work out, but had I won that fight, my career would have had, had this crazy trajectory. I would have been, I'd have probably been ranked in the top, you know, top five fighters, flyweights in the world. And uh, I would have had a lot of opportunity. And, uh, and so I traded opportunity for a place that I had to come rebound from MMA wise. And, uh, and I felt like MMA was over for me at that time. And it really closed the door some opportunity. And it was probably needed to be closed at a time to give me a clear runway to start Mighty Oaks. And so I'm actually looking back now and I'm thankful for those two losses in a row because of where my life is. And I thought my, I thought MMA was all over. Start my Oaks in a small little town called West Cliff, Colorado, elevation of 10,000 feet. No way there's a jiu-jitsu. I mean, the co- county had 800 people in it. That's where we started Mighty Oaks. The whole county had 800 people. So what's the chances of uh, them having MMA and jiu-jitsu? I thought it was a sacrifice I'd have to make. They're not about to do MMA and jiu-jitsu anymore. I end up in this little town and I'm walking walking uh, down the street one day and somebody sees my cauliflower ears. And he said, hey, do you know Randy Couture? And I'm like, of course I know Randy Couture. The natural. Who doesn't know Randy Couture, right? I mean, this is a, right. he's super popular at that time. And they pointed to me on the side of the hill and they said, that's his house over there. <laughs> and uh, and so Randy had a house in West Club, Colorado. Um, as a you know, He has a play, house in Las Vegas too, of course. But he had a house in, in West Coast, Colorado, and he'd do his camps up there. And they had a guy named Brad Anderson, who was an Olympic wrestling coach, who lived there to kind of caretake the house for him in a group of, group of really tough, really tough staple of fighters there. And so what I thought I gave up and relinquished, it was willing to relinquish for ministry, for the, what the call God had in my heart to lay that down. I believe God came in and replaced it with the opportunity to train with some of the best fighters in the world the best coaches, Brad Anderson and Randy Couture, and uh, come back and be able to finish my career, do two more fights that wasn't for me, that was for promoting Mighty Oaks and veterans, and the pressure was off of that to win or lose because I didn't care about a career anymore. I just cared about competing and representing something bigger than myself. And I, and I ended up into my career with winning two uh, fights against two incredible opponents, Joseph Sandoval, a UFC fighter. Uh, I fought him. Uh, Randy and Randy Couture and Brad Anderson got me ready for it. Felt like it's my best performance ever. 58 seconds. I submitted, uh, submitted Joseph Sandoval, then got signed with world series of fighting on NBC sports, fought an undefeated 24 year old. When I was 38, Andrew Yates, he was eight. No. And, uh, submitted him at the same choke and put him to sleep. Uh, and, uh, just a great kid. Awesome kid. And uh, I say kid, he's just a, you know, really, really good athlete, a lot younger than me. And, uh, and so that was what, and that was the end of it for me. That was, I feel really happy with my career. Uh, not regretful for those losses because, because they, they could have tra- changed the course of my, my direction, my life. Um, but really happy to get those two wins at the end and the way they they happened. And uh, I got to really promote Mighty Oaks on both uh, HDNet with legacy fights and then um, 
and then on uh, NBC Sports with World Series fighting. Right. And, and I mean, you, you get a lot of guys that don't end their career on a win. And you see this, and I, I think Chel Sonnen said this before. It's like, you know, I plan on going out unconscious, face down, bloody, and embarrassed. Like, that's how a lot of guys leave uh, the sport of MMA. But you were able to leave on a, on a win streak. Well, you never, it's never a good time to leave. I mean, uh, if you're a competitor, you either want to redeem that loss or you want the next opportunity that comes with that win. So it's never a good time to leave. For me, the 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 busyness of Mighty Oaks, I would have had to sacrifice something at Mighty Oaks for me to continue fighting. And uh, so it gave me a good reasoning. Absolutely. Well, hey, we're going to transition to a couple of lightning rounds. Okay. So the first lightning round are going to be kind of like quick hitter MMA questions. And then we're going to be getting into some uh, kind of an interesting category that I like to do called what would you say to someone that said? So with all these, since it's lightning round, You've got 30 seconds or less to answer all these questions. So we're going to remove the fluff, all the nuance again. Like I told you off air, you're not going to offend anybody if you give a quick answer. So you up for it? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So here's your first lightning round MMA question. Who is the toughest fighter you ever faced and why? Zach Makovsky because of his wrestling. All right. Next question. Out of everyone in MMA history, who would you have wanted to fight the most? Um... Uriah Faber. All right, I'll, I'll let you give a little follow up. Why Uriah Faber? Because he, because I'm a, I'm a scrambler, and he's the best, one of the best scramblers in MMA. That's right, that's right. All right, next one here. So obviously, you fought at 125 pounds. Two of the greatest ever were flyweights as well. That's Henry Cejudo and Demetrius Johnson. How do you think fights would have gone between you and both of those guys? Um, uh, in my time, maybe not right now. <laughs> yeah, not right now. When you're in your their your prime, and they're in their yeah. prime. Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I really wanted to fight with Demetrius Johnson. Um, I think at my time I would have been a rare competitive. I think I would I think I could, would have submitted Demetrius Johnson, and uh, and I, I think I would have I think I would have beat beat Henry Cusudo. I think I would have beat both those guys at one twenty five. I've never lost at one twenty five, by the way. All right, next question: Who is your favorite fighter to watch of all time? Suzuki Sakuraba. Absolutely. It's so funny. Uh, you say Sakuraba. Most of the fights I saw Sakuraba were at the end of his career when he was basically having to like duct tape himself together in order yeah. to get into the ring. And so I wish I could have started with his earlier fights, but it kind of sullied me a little bit, but that, that guy's amazing. Next question here. Who is the most overrated fighter in MMA history? Henry Cajudo. All right. Why do you say that? Cause I don't think he's, I don't think he's as good as a, I think he's just got, I think he's just kind of, had a few lucky, lucky, lucky. Uh, I hate to take away from any athlete when you use the word luck, but I think he's just been pretty lucky, and uh, and I don't think he's as good as he's being held up to be. He's just not. All right, who is in your MMA Mount Rushmore? And to give you a second to think about it, I'll, I'll go ahead and tell you mine. I always like to give you a little bit of a second to think about it. So mine is George St. Pierre, because I think he's the greatest fighter ever. And then I've got John Jones, because I think he might be the most dangerous person on planet Earth. And I mean that just about every way you can say that about John Jones. Um, I kind of go back and forth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I kind of go back and forth on Daniel Cormier and Hoist Gracie. Uh, but I've, I put Daniel Cormier just because of the the, the resume of people that he's beaten and then just for his importance to the sport and elevating it to a level that no one thought possible, Conor McGregor. So that's my MMA Mount Rushmore. What's your MMA Mount Rushmore? Khabib. Well, you got to, you got four guys on Mount Rushmore. So you, do you think Khabib is the goat? You think Khabib Nurmagomedov is the goat? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Khabib. Um, oh gosh. Let's see. Man, Khabib, I hate to, I hate to say it, John Jones. <laughs> I, I know it's, it's like you have to, but we're yeah. taking everything into consideration. Everything yeah. considered, he's still the, yeah. one of the Khabib, greatest. Khabib, John Jones, Daniel Cormier, uh, George St. Pierre. All right, sounds good. We're yeah. going to transition to our last lightning round here. And like I said earlier, it's this. What would you say to someone that said, and then I will fill in the blank. And these are things that maybe I've heard said online. Maybe I've thought, maybe other people have thought, but these are just quick hitters, 30 seconds. Give us your thoughts. So first one here, what would you say to someone that said, I'm thinking about joining the military? Make sure you pick, pick the job, pick the job you want to do every day. All right. What would you say to someone that said, 
Only paranoid people can seal carry. Idiotic. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Next one here. What would you you say to someone that said, and remember you got 30 seconds. You don't have three seconds. I mean, you, you could, you can give us a little more context if you want to. what What would you say to someone that said only paranoid people train martial arts? Oh, I, I think, um, only paranoid people that train martial arts. Well, I mean, I think it's uh, irresponsible not to train more. It's irresponsible not to train martial arts for the safety of yourself, for the safety of the people around you, for your overall health. You know, you've been given one body and, and, uh, use it for, uh, you, you should use your body to, you should take care of your body first of all. And, uh, and always, um, take care of your body mentally, physically, spiritually. I think nothing else does that besides like martial arts. All right. What would you say to someone that said, Chad Robichaux has so many submissions because he has pillow hands. <laughs> <laughs> you like that one? <laughs> yeah. I'd say, uh, let me, let me, give me, give me one shot. <laughs> take, take one the for you. Actually, I, I, I have bricks in my hands. I just, uh, I just, uh, prefer to use my strengths. Yeah. Prefer strangulation. <laughs> that, that's a good answer there. Mm-hmm. All right. What would you say to someone that said people in the military just want to kill people? Yeah, I'd say uh, that is 100% just the opposite. I think people in the military want to help people that can't help themselves uh, and serve others. And, uh, you know, uh, man, I've seen some amazing Americans give their life for the, give their, literally give their life for the sake of people that they never knew or, or uh, people that maybe even hated them as well. So. All right. What would you say to someone that said, I don't need to train martial arts. I'm big, strong, and athletic. Hmm. I would say take a take a one hour fundamental class of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and come talk to me after after they get done puking in the trash can, <laughs> uh, and after they get done getting tapped out by a hundred and fifty pound person that's not very athletic looking. So all right, <laughs> next one here. Next one here. What would you say to someone that said I never remember soldiers from World War II complaining about PTSD? Modern soldiers are just soft. Yeah. Uh, I need more than 30 seconds for that one, but I will, I'll try to summarize it. Um, World War II is a different time. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of contacts in it. One is one is that they had a lot of time to come home to reintegrate. Took them a long time to come home. They had a lot less exposure, even though in more extreme sub- exposure, they had a lot less duration of exposure to combat. Um, and they and and probably the most important thing is they came home to such a great foundation with ticker tape parades that they had a place to reintegrate to. Uh, in a different way. The culture was much different then. And I think that's one of the biggest factors uh, with that. A lot of them suffered. A lot of them suffered silently and uh, and, and very tragically uh, didn't get the help that they needed. Vietnam veterans did not get that welcome home and they suffered silently because um, they felt isolated too. And I'm, I'm, thank, I'm thankful for both of those generations that we've learned lessons of how to care for our warriors that we're doing it differently now. All right. I appreciate that answer. Just a few more left here. What would you say to someone that said, God can't use me. My story isn't dramatic enough. Hmm. Well, I think, uh, I've met a lot of Christians that feel like because of the, like me speaking and speaking about brokenness and redemption, they think that they, their story isn't, isn't as relevant. Uh, I think God could use, God could use anyone. In fact, he does have a plan and purpose for everybody's life. The Bible clearly tells us this. And uh, so I, you know, everybody's story may be different. Uh, it's a story that someone needs to hear. Maybe it's, a, maybe, it's maybe for those who lived a, a not so tragic life, it's a story of uh, when you do things a certain way, then tragedy doesn't come in, doesn't come into your life. Um, you know, that's not a, not a blueprint for how life's going to play out for anyone. But I believe that we all, uh, we all were created by God. We were created for, with a plan and purpose. And the most significant thing you could do in your life is, is seek out and identify the plan and purpose God has in your life and live it out, regardless of what your story is. All right. A couple more here. What would you say to someone that said, I can't train jujitsu. I'm afraid I'll just get hurt. Hmm. I would say find the right school because while there are jujitsu schools out there that do have bad players and people that don't care about your safety and, and there's egos, uh, for every one of those schools, there's probably five or six schools that are people that do care about you will give you a safe training environment. And so even if you've had, even if you have that fear or maybe you've had a bad experience, 
I, w- I would say not, don't stop looking. Find someone that can maybe give you some – that's in jiu-jitsu that can maybe help you find a school that's safe and appropriate uh, to train in a safe environment where there aren't egos involved. Look for a place that has a fundamentals class. That's usually a good indication that, that – um, a fundamental beginner's class is usually a good indication that the school cares about new people and building up future teammates. All right, Chad, last question of the day. What would you say to a veteran that said, I will not get better. PTSD owns me. Yeah, that there's always hope. You're not alone, even though you feel alone. And, um, and despite how dark your past may be, may be, um, there, there is a future for you. And, um, the one advice I would say is, and it's kind of just a catchphrase, don't let your path, don't let your past define the future and don't make a permanent decision and a temporary problem. And as deep as your problem may seem, it is temporary. Uh, the way forward is to surround yourself with the right people and, uh, lock arms with people that you can trust to move forward and there's help out there. All right. Well, we've, we've covered a lot of ground today. I certainly appreciate your time, but, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, sorry. I, I took a ran with the interview and didn't let you ask your questions. I just figured you didn't interrupt me when you wanted to. <laughs> well, I, that's the thing is I will let you go as long as you want to go. And like I said, you pretty much checked all my boxes off that I wanted to do that. So Chad Robichaux, thanks for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you so much, man. God bless you guys. All right, there you go, guys. I hope you got something out of that. We certainly enjoyed our time that we have with Chad Robichaux. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. As you know by now, we are a men's ministry, and our mission is cultivating manly resilience. Specifically, we do that by providing content like this podcast that helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical toughness. So for today, the links I've got for you, I've got a link to the Mighty Oaks website, so you guys can go check that out. If you're a veteran or if you've got veterans in your family, this is a great website for you. It's a great resource. I've got a link to the Chad Robichaux bio. I've got a link to the I Am second video that he did, which is fantastic. His Amazon book link. So if you listened about any of the books that he was talking about there in the podcast, you can find those there. And I've also got links to his Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast. We really do appreciate it. If you would, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher and refer your friends to listen and share this on social media. If we deserve a five-star review, please leave us one in a few sentences letting us know why you like the content. I'm currently booking speaking engagements for the remainder of 2020 and the beginning of 2021, so if you want me to come speak on your podcast, at your men's event, in front of your team, whatever, hit me up, info at undaunted.life. Again, that's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Our website is www.undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at undauntedlife or facebook.com backslash undauntedlife. Check out our free devotionals on the Uversion Bible app. Just search Undaunted Life under plans, and as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their entire music library for our content. The intro outro track on this podcast is their song Defender, which is off their latest record entitled Guardians. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep cultivating manly resilience, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical toughness, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. I need enough-